HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, I'm Jeff Sturchio, Senior Associate at the Global Health Policy Center of CSIS. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Greg Millett, Vice President and Director of Public Policy at AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research. This is one of a series of podcasts in which we're exploring what needs to be done to end the AIDS epidemic, both globally and domestically. Greg is a former senior scientist with the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, who also worked as a senior policy advisor in the White House Office of National AIDS Policy, where he helped to write President Obama's original national HIV-AIDS strategy and worked to support the strategy's implementation across the federal government. He's also published more than 80 quantitative research studies in top medical, public health, and policy journals, including the Journal of the American Medical Association, Lancet, Health Affairs, and the American Journal of Public Health, and his work has been widely cited in the scientific literature. He's worked and published with Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he and his work have been profiled in the Washington Post, Scientific American, The Lancet, and other media. Recently, Greg Millett has done some COVID-19 research, which provided the first national glimpse of the pandemic's impact on Black and Latinx communities. These research findings have been quoted by members of Congress during Capitol Hill hearings, used as an underpinning for proposed legislation, and as well as cited at National Academy of Sciences briefings, and reported widely across both domestic and global print and televised media. In 2020, Greg was the opening plenary speaker for the International AIDS Conference. He's an alumnus of Dartmouth College and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and is also a person living with HIV. So you can see that Greg's expertise and experience make him well-suited to discuss today's question, are we doing enough to reach underserved populations in the fight against HIV-AIDS? So, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's good to have you. You know, here we are 40 years into the HIV-AIDS pandemic, and progress toward the goal of eliminating HIV-AIDS as a public health challenge is mixed. Uh, in the U.S., the U.S. government adopted an ambitious plan in 2019 to end the HIV epidemic, or EHE as the project is known, with goals of reducing new infections by 75% in five years and by 90% in 10 years. But new data from the CDC show, for example, that the rate of new infections among Black and Latinx, gay and bisexual men did not decline over the past decade. The global targets adopted in 2016 were not reached by 2020, despite ambitious efforts. So the U.S. goals for EHE are not fully on track. 
Now, of course, the disruptions caused by COVID-19 explain part of the shortfall in the delivery of HIV prevention and treatment services, but what else explains why the HIV response seems to have stalled? Winnie Bayanima, the executive director of UNAIDS, has observed, to beat a pandemic, you have to confront the inequalities that drive it. Stigma and denial, structural racism, discrimination against adolescent girls and young women, as well as bias and barriers to access for other vulnerable and key populations, social determinants of health like poverty, housing, and education, these are all persistent sources of inequalities that have an impact on efforts to fight HIV-AIDS. The renewed U.S. HIV-AIDS strategy also notes that, quote, structural inequities have resulted in racial and ethnic health disparities that are severe, far-reaching, and unacceptable, unquote. The solution to these problems will require renewed efforts beyond technical interventions, such as better prevention tools, diagnostics, and medicines, and it will require efforts that place affected communities at the center of the public health response. So with that as background, Greg, let's start by taking a look at the status of the HIV epidemic in the U.S. today. What's driving the epidemic? How are health disparities reflected in the patterns of infection care and treatment? What does it look like when you break the data down by race, ethnicity, age, and geography? And what are the key sources of risk and vulnerability that make it challenging to achieve the EHE goals? Just a few questions to start us <laughs> off. No, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate the questions. When we take a look at HIV today, we know that there are about 1.1 million Americans who are living with HIV. And the latest data that we have from CDC is that there are about 36,000 new HIV diagnoses that took place in 2019. When you break that down by risk groups, 70% of those diagnoses were among men who have sex with men, 23% were among heterosexuals, and about 7% were among people who inject drugs. By race, we know that the HIV pandemic for quite some time now, since the mid-90s, has been primarily an epidemic among communities of color. So most of the diagnoses are taking place among African Americans as well as Latinos compared with whites in the U.S., and we see that it doesn't matter what risk group that there is, that we see that same dynamic, that it's a greater proportion of communities of color among men who have sex with men, among heterosexuals, among people who inject drugs who are diagnosed with HIV. And then in terms of region, we certainly see that the South has really become the new focal point for HIV diagnoses and HIV infections in the United States, where most of the infections are taking place are in the Southern US. In terms of what's driving these vulnerabilities and, and how we might see a challenge in addressing the EHE goals, there's several things that are gonna be challenging for us. You mentioned the social determinants of health, and that's going to be a major challenge. We know from the National Academy of Sciences that there was a report that they issued very recently in 2020 that showed that healthcare accounts for only 10 to 20 percent of the determinants of health, that up to 50 percent of the determinants of health are physical environment as well as socioeconomic factors. And we certainly see that play out with HIV. So for instance, one of the social determinants is housing instability. And we see that among people living with HIV, if you are fully housed, if you're renting off space, or if you have your own home, viral suppression among those individuals is 85%. Viral suppression is key because we know that people who are virally suppressed are less likely to transmit HIV. They're also more likely to live longer and happy, healthier lives. For those individuals, though, who are living in a shelter, viral suppression is only 59%. And for those individuals who are living outdoors, who are homeless, it's 42%. And we also know with homelessness that people who are homeless at diagnosis for HIV are 27 times more likely to die from HIV as compared to people who are not. Other social determinants are even traveling. And, and where people live and how close to care they are. And we know that being uninsured is associated with a greater distance for travel for HIV care. And even here in Washington, D.C., 
There were data from the DC cohort of people living with HIV, where they found that traveling greater than five miles was associated with a 30% lower retention in HIV care, as well as a 30% lower likelihood of being virally suppressed. So we see this over and over again in the HIV literature that people who have less education are more likely to be HIV positive. People who are poor have greater rates of HIV. People who are homeless have greater rates of HIV as well. So that's one of the things that we have to do is dealing with the social determinants of health. The other issue, too, is the fact that we have all these amazing scientific advances for HIV, but the scientific advances are not necessarily reaching those populations who need it the most. So we've seen it when antiretroviral therapy first became available in the mid-90s, is that African-Americans and Latinos were less likely to have access to ART. We're seeing the same thing right now with pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a pill that you can take once a day to prevent you from getting HIV if you're HIV negative, that again, the same populations who are at highest risk are less likely to have access to it. And this is having real repercussions because we just noted that we're 40 years into the HIV pandemic and the demographics have markedly shifted because of these different accesses to healthcare as well as to many of these innovations. So for instance, in 1981, about 56% of HIV diagnoses were among whites. By 2019, that fell to 25%. For Latinos and Blacks in 1981, respectively, 16% and 29% were among those populations. By 2019, it was 29% and 41%. So we're having an epidemic that is browner, an epidemic that is affecting those who are more vulnerable, those who are falling through the cracks, where the social determinants of health are making it difficult for them. And it's not just the race-ethnicity issue. One of the other issues that we're going to have in terms of being able to end HIV is employing the interventions that we know can actually end transmission cycles for HIV. One of the biggest interventions that we've seen is syringe services programs. We know that people who are active drug users who are in syringe services programs are less likely to transmit HIV. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to get HIV. However, we're seeing now a huge retrenchment from syringe services programs all across the nation. As many of the listeners might remember, back in 2014, there was a huge outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, of 200 people who were syringe services drug users who were using opioids, where 200 of them became infected with HIV. And that's unprecedented because the rates of HIV infection have been declining among drug users, and we hadn't seen outbreaks of that magnitude. As soon as the syringe services program was adopted there, that was instituted by CDC, we saw that the number of new infections plateaued and then completely decreased and mm -hmm. disappeared. Unfortunately, in that same county two years later, they stopped the syringe services program. And we're seeing the same thing happening in West Virginia and other places where they are not employing the interventions that can reduce HIV infections the most in some of these communities. And then just a couple of other things that are challenges for EHE is that HIV stigma still remains a huge issue in the United States 40 years into the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, we used to call it the four H's, hemophiliacs, Haitians, homosexuals, and heroin users, who are at greater risk for HIV and were heavily stigmatized in the 80s and the 90s. But unfortunately, that stigma continues, despite the fact that we have effective treatment, despite the fact that people living with HIV, by and large, are no longer infectious. Just consider the way that Charlie Sheen received his treatment in the media several years ago when he came out as being HIV positive, where the media really focused on whether or not he transmitted HIV to any of his various girlfriends, despite the fact that his doctors and everybody were saying that he was virally suppressed, that it's unlikely that that would happen. So this stigma is real, and it's a problem because it keeps people from getting tested for HIV. And then the last two things to say as well is that administration priorities change from 
administration to administration. So there's no guarantee that the next administration is going to prioritize ending the HIV AIDS epidemic. We saw that there were differences between the Clinton administration and the Bush administration in terms of focusing on domestic or global HIV. The same thing with the Obama administration, which essentially flat funded PEPFAR, but focused on domestic HIV. And we also seen that each White House has not necessarily had an office of national AIDS policy where I worked that could help coordinate addressing domestic HIV. So that's going to be a big issue as well in ending the HIV because you have to make sure that every administration buys into each one of these issues. And then last is the whole issue of disruptive natural events that can make it really difficult for us to keep our focus on HIV. There was a wonderful paper that was published in PLOS One. It was a study that was a systematic review of malaria resurgence programs across the world. And what was some of the primary reasons why malaria resurged in many different places, such as Tajikistan, Azerbaijan, and Sri Lanka. And one of the things that they found was that malaria resurgence followed some sort of massive upheaval, like war, population movement, or associated disruptions in Europe and Asia. And of course, one of the major things that's been a massive upheaval for us over the past two years, and we're going into the third year, is the COVID-19 pandemic, which is certainly affecting not only HIV rates in the United States, but certainly globally as well. Actually, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So let's turn to that. You gave us a terrific review of the state of the HIV epidemic in the U.S. now. What happened with the impact of COVID over the last couple of years? How has that had a disruptive effect? What are some of the things that worry you the most about that? What are some of the ways that we're seeing people adjust to dealing with these two pandemics at the same time? I appreciate the question. We're trying to still sort out what the effect of COVID has been. With HIV surveillance, surveillance usually lags by two years. So CDC is going to announce what took place in 2020 this year, where we have a glimpse of what actually happened and what the first effects are for the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's certainly some shorter term things that we've seen, indicators that have shown that it has certainly affected the HIV pandemic domestically. So there's been an 85% reduction in tests for HIV, gonorrhea, and chlamydia as of May of 2020. We know that there's been reductions in HIV testing when we closed down nationally during the COVID pandemic. There's also been a reduction in new HIV screenings as well as new HIV diagnoses over that same period of time. And we've seen decreased visits for HIV care in specific populations, particularly those that are at highest risk for HIV. And more importantly, you know, just to really bring that case home and how this issue really affects us. Here in Washington, D.C., the Department of Health just released a report in the last two weeks to show the degree to which the COVID-19 pandemic has affected HIV here in D.C. And what they found was that there was a drop of people who are HIV positive who were in treatment in 2020, a significant drop, and that they basically said that the coronavirus crisis has greatly hampered the district's effort to combat the virus that causes AIDS. So that's been some of the immediate effects that we've seen. But there are other effects as well. We've known before COVID-19 that public health jobs have been buffeted by many different things that have been taking place. In 2008, there was a report that showed that in terms of public health jobs, that there's going to be a shortfall of as much as 250,000 public health professional workers by 2020. And from the 2008 recession, all of those public health jobs that were lost in excess of 51,000 were never replaced Mm -hmm. before COVID-19. 
And then when we look at healthcare preparedness and emergency preparedness, that was cut by nearly 50% from $515 million in 2004 to $265 million in 2019. So we were not prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic as public health workers. Add on top of that, that we have so many public health workers in infectious disease who've been crucial to the response for COVID-19, who are now serving double duty between COVID-19 and HIV, and have been doing so for the last three years, we're seeing greater rates of burnout. The other issue that we see as well in terms of COVID-19 is that COVID-19 is not a pandemic in and of itself, that it's operating with other pandemics that are taking place in terms of HIV, in terms of the opioid pandemic and others. And we see this over and over again in the data. So for instance, in 2020, CDC released data showing that in 2020, there was a 30% increase in opioid mortalities in the U.S., and a lot of that had to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, with a lot of people sheltering in place, no access mm -hmm. to spending time with others, and increases in deaths and increases in drug use as well. And then we also see from data that those counties that have the greatest rates of COVID-19 mortality are also the same counties that have the greatest rates of opioid deaths mm -hmm. and are also the same counties that have the greatest rates of unemployment and the same counties that have a disproportionate number of African-Americans. So all of this is you know, coming together in a really lethal mix that COVID-19 is making it difficult for us to address HIV pandemic. And two other quick points that I just want to make really quickly is that when we look at vaccination rates of people living with HIV, there are data that were just released by CDC as well as New York City that found that vaccination coverage for people living with HIV was actually less than the general population. And that's something that we all should be concerned about. Only about 64% of people living with HIV were fully vaccinated in New York compared to the general population of 75%. And of course, we saw the same fault lines in terms of mm. among communities of color, among by income, et cetera. But the thing that really worries me the most is that even among those people living with HIV who are reliably in care, their vaccination rates were still lower than the general population. Mm. So there's something about this COVID-19 pandemic that is making it difficult for us to achieve what we need to achieve in ending HIV. Now, in terms of long-term effects, there's still a lot of things that we just don't know. One of them is we've seen a huge uptick in mistrust for science globally as well as domestically. How is that going to affect HIV care and care for other diseases if we see the mistrust in science for COVID-19 now being applied in other fields where historically we haven't seen that? And the other issue, too, is long-term COVID. One of the manifestations of long-term COVID is brain fog, where people become disoriented. People might forget to take their medications. What does this mean for people living with mm -hmm. HIV where greater than 50% are over the age of 50 and where they're taking multiple medications per day? So there's a lot of things that we just don't know about in terms of COVID-19 that unfortunately can really hurt our efforts to end the HIV AIDS epidemic. You know, one of the things you just mentioned is particularly surprising to me where you said that among people who are reliably in HIV care, their COVID-19 vaccination rates are below what the general population is. But that was surprising because isn't it generally the case that for people who are reliably in care, they're healthier than a cohort who are not HIV positive, but have a similar kind of socioeconomic status so that you would have expected that vaccination rates would be higher among people reliably in care. I mean, has anybody studied why that difference is there? No, the, the CDC and the New York State Department of Health, they also noted that same statistic, but could not really explain it. Some of it that might be explained is that these are the same groups that already are less likely to take other vaccines, such as the flu vaccine. So it's, you know, primarily African-Americans, mm -hmm. primarily Latinos, primarily individuals with lower levels of income who might be reliably in care in terms of HIV, 
but still less likely to take a flu vaccine and then now less likely to take a COVID-19 vaccine. But there's more that needs to be done in terms of qualitative work to ask people, well, why didn't you take the COVID-19 vaccine? Was it issues in terms of mistrust? Was it something that you heard about the vaccine online or through friends that scared you away from taking the vaccine? All of that data and work still is yet to be done. Yeah, also, you know, and this question of trust has become a real issue lately. We were all intrigued by the results that Tom Boyke and, and Joseph Dieleman and their colleagues had found when they looked across 177 countries and asked, what are the factors that led some countries to do a better job of dealing with COVID-19 than others? And they found that one of the most important correlations was that countries in which there was trust in government and trust in fellow citizens generally did better on COVID-19 than, than other countries. So it's a real issue. But bringing this back to HIV, though, and this may be a naive question, but, but tell me if it is. You know, I've worked on HIV issues for, for decades, and one of the things that I've found in working with the HIV community is that there tends to be, for people who have been in care for a long time, a really close relationship between folks and their physicians and nurses and, you know, like the team that helps care for HIV-positive people. So there generally is a good deal of trust. Talk a little bit about how we see this juxtaposition of mistrust in science and public health on the one hand, you know, sort of writ large, but at the same time for people who actually are in the system, who are reliably in care, there actually is a fair amount of trust. And so you would think that that would spill over to dealing with things like a new crisis like COVID-19, but apparently it hasn't. That's the thing that's really remarkable is that it hasn't. And we've seen this, you know, represented in even some of the surveys nationally. So, for instance, Gallup has a survey that they've had online since 1975 looking at trust in science. And they found that it's down. It was 70 percent of the general public in 1975, down to about 63 percent in 2021. And then RWJ Harvard also has done several polls looking at trust as well. And they ran another poll in 2020. And what they found is that it didn't matter if it was a local health department, the survey in general, NIH, FDA, or even HHS, that trust in all of those institutions was less than 50% of the general mm. public. The only one institution that did fairly okay at that time period was CDC at 52%. The question for many of us is, how is this mistrust going to affect, and particularly in COVID-19, how is it going to sort of cross over and bleed over into other specific areas? And we might be seeing that with some of the New York City data in terms of the COVID-19 vaccine, that even among people who are reliably in care, even if they do trust their providers, that there's still messaging that they might have heard about the vaccine that would override that trust. And there's a lot more work and a lot of messaging that we're going to need to do in the future to try and unpack a lot of that, but also to try and figure out how do we keep people in HIV care and make sure that that messaging and mistrust seeps into HIV care as well. Let's turn in a slightly different direction, but it, it relates to the things that you've been talking about. One of the challenges and continuing challenges that we see for communities of color and some of the other key populations that you've mentioned is that there isn't really a level playing field when it comes to their engagement with the U.S. healthcare system. The healthcare system itself has this patchwork of uneven coverage and access to HIV prevention and treatment. There's substantial barriers to access for key populations and others seeking care and treatment. And that uneven playing field is both a symptom of and an explanation for the inequalities that lead to disparities in healthcare and health status. And with factors like housing and poverty, education, racism, stigma and discrimination, which you've mentioned. How do you see all of this playing out? I mean, how are we going to find a way to use the knowledge that comes from the data that you've been talking about so that we actually can understand what is happening and how is it affecting different groups? 
But what are some of the solutions that we then have to implement to ensure that this unlevel playing field becomes a level playing field so that people have both adequate and, and equitable access to care and treatment? This is something I think about a lot as a disparities researcher at CDC. And, you know, one of the things that we do now that I'm at AMFAR is to make sure that data aren't interpretable for people. A lot of people don't necessarily understand the data. If something's just presented in statistics, perhaps it's not the easiest way to understand Mm -hmm. it. What we do is we try to help people visualize the data so that they can understand the magnitude of the impact and how unequal the impact is in different communities. That's what we've done with the COVID-19 data that started to really make the rounds across cable news and everywhere else because we're able to actually visualize this disproportionate impact in communities of color in those counties all across the U.S. Once people are able to visualize it, it's something that is easily accessible for people on the ground, for advocates that they can use, for policymakers, for them to understand this disproportionate impact, and for providers and many others to discuss. I think the second thing that we need to do is we need to take a look at some of the things that have worked. So for instance, one of the things that has worked is in the army and the armed services, the disparities that we see by race, ethnicity, and income are a lot less pronounced than we've seen in general population. And a lot of that is because there's an emphasis on equality, on everybody being egalitarian and treating everyone exactly the same. We've actually seen that happen with COVID-19, that even though among veterans even, in the Veterans Administration, even though Blacks and Latinos were more likely to get COVID-19, they were just as likely to die compared to white veterans, whereas in the general population, they're far more likely to die at Mm. Blacks and Latinos. And a lot of that is because of the equality of care and this egalitarian system that we have that's there. And that's something that I think we need to learn from and trying to figure out, well, how do we extrapolate that out to greater society to have that egalitarian type of approach to move things along? I think the third thing that we need to consider as well is just some of the ways in which that we practice healthcare disadvantages some communities compared to others. So for instance, there's a wonderful paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that found in many different subspecialties of medicine that just the algorithms that we use, the different things that are placed in a computer automatically disadvantage some communities compared to another. And we've certainly seen that with COVID-19 with the pulse oximeters that many people have been using to basically measure oxygen levels, blood oxygen levels, you know, for COVID-19 so that people know when they should go to the hospital or not. Those pulse oximeters are normed with people with lighter skin as compared Mm. to people with darker skin. So if you have darker skin and you're using a pulse oximeter, you know that you can't breathe. The pulse oximeter is actually saying, well, no, this person is doing fine in terms of oxygen levels as compared to somebody else who would have the same issues, be at the same level, who was lighter skin, where the pulse oximeter would show, wow, this person really needs to get to the hospital immediately. So those types of things are the other types of things that we need to do. And we see it as well with HIV. The guidelines that we have for pre-exposure prophylaxis, again, the pill that you could take once a day to prevent you from getting HIV, those guidelines were based upon specific behaviors that people engage in. But there have been data from Emory University and other places showing that it's not necessarily something that's helpful for all communities. So for instance, Emory found that among white gay men, that the guidelines you know, nearly predicted which gay men should and should not have PrEP based upon their risk behavior. But for black gay men, the guidelines were very off. Only about 50% of the black gay men who seroconverted in the next year would have been caught by the mm. existing guidelines because of the way the guidelines were set up and not realizing that risk behavior for black gay men, even though it's lower, still places them at greater risk for HIV. So there's specific things that we need to do in terms of our guidelines, in terms of our instrumentation, in terms of our algorithms, where we could try and help level the playing field and really revisit some of those specific issues. Actually, I'm glad you brought up PrEP because that's another area I wanted to get to. It's just fascinating what you said about oximeters. 
you know, it would never have occurred to me that oximeters were not designed so that they would work equally well, whoever is using them, right? You know, and those are the kinds of sort of hidden aspects of the disparities and inequities in healthcare that just really need to be uncovered, brought to light. And then we have to really make sure that interventions that are available are going to be useful for everybody equally. And then there's the question of making sure that they're equally accessible to, to everybody. That's a related question. And that's what I wanted to come back to that with PrEP, because what you were saying about risk behaviors is quite interesting. And obviously, there's a lot more work to be done to dig into that so that guidelines accurately reflect the risk profile that people will have, depending on you know, what population group they come from. But also, we know CDC has reported that PrEP is only available to less than one quarter of the population who could conceivably benefit. You know, and that's particularly concerning given that PrEP is becoming even more effective. That is, it's easier to take now. You have injectable versions where rather than have to take a pill every day, you may only need an injection once a month or even less frequently for some PrEP medicine. So why is it that it's so inaccessible? Leaving aside the question about what are the right guidelines, but you know, this is another big problem, I think. Again, you know, healthcare access in the U.S. depends upon whether or not people have insurance. It depends upon income. It depends upon where people live and as well as race and ethnicity. And what we're seeing with PrEP is something that we already saw with antiretroviral therapy. Once antiretroviral therapy became available, there's actually in a shorter period of time, disparities between blacks living with HIV and whites living with HIV actually increased. And why they increased is because blacks were less likely to have antiretroviral therapy access. And you saw the mortality rates just balloon. Whereas whites had access to antiretroviral therapy and you saw mortality rates just start to crater. So we're seeing the same thing with PrEP in terms of not having equal access among some of these different groups. It's exactly what took place with COVID-19. COVID-19 testing was available first in higher income neighborhoods all across the United States. It didn't matter if you were in a blue or red state. In neighborhoods that were usually white neighborhoods as compared to black or Latino neighborhoods, despite the fact that there were early data showing that blacks and Latinos were at greater rates for COVID-19. And the same thing is now played out now with COVID-19 vaccines, where it's been the same issue where certain groups were able to access these vaccines compared to other groups. Even here in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post did a wonderful analysis that showed exactly when vaccines became available in Washington, D.C. in 2021, and they charted COVID-19 infection rates between blacks and whites in Washington, D.C., and you see this explosion of the cases being more and more black as compared to white, where whites, the cases were decreasing almost to just basically zero because blacks were less likely to access the vaccines mm. or have it. So we're seeing what's happening with PrEP is something that's happened always, that, you know, medications and new innovations that take place to populations that need it the most don't have access to it. Another issue, too, with PrEP that we see both domestically and globally is this PrEP cascade. So when you take a look at populations, there are many in a population who've never heard of PrEP, and that's one of the biggest indicator of being able to use it. We've seen domestically as well as globally, those populations that haven't heard of it, of course, are not going to use it. But then the cascade goes down further. It's not just hearing about it. It's being able to have insurance or any other type of access to pre-exposure prophylaxis. Once you do have that access, then the whole issue is if somebody are able to maintain staying on PrEP. And that's a whole other issue, too, that we see both globally and domestically. You have high rates of initiation, but people are not staying on PrEP. So what do we do about that? A lot of this bore out really nicely in a paper that was published in JAMA by Kaiser Health. It was one of the largest cohort studies looking at pre-exposure prophylaxis in the U.S. where they followed people over several years and they found that prep prescriptions and initiations were high. 
But priority populations, populations that are at greater risk of getting HIV, such as racial and ethnic groups, women, young adults, people with low social economic levels, and individuals who abuse substances were less likely to receive a prescription for PrEP and less likely to initiate PrEP. And they also found that they're more likely to discontinue PrEP despite comparable healthcare access. So there's a lot of work that we need to do in PrEP that we've seen that's unfortunately taken place with ART and other places. Part of the blame for this also falls on providers. We know that there's been several studies showing differences based upon discipline. People who are infectious disease providers are more likely to recommend PrEP as compared to generalists. And we've seen in study after study where providers are looking at people and sort of saying summarily, oh, well, you know, you're a woman, you're less likely to get HIV, or you're an older person, you're less likely to get HIV, and not even suggesting PrEP. Or if patients are asking for it, they're not referring their patients for PrEP. That's a problem too. We need to make sure that we get all of these physicians on the same messaging in terms of that everybody is at risk for HIV and particularly in some specific groups compared to others. And then last, one of the biggest obstacles, of course, is that we need to keep people in care for PrEP, just like we have to keep people in care for HIV. For HIV, we've not been doing great in terms of keeping people in care. And you see that in terms of not only the viral suppression rates, but those people who are sustainably virally suppressed. That's about ending HIV. To end HIV, it's not one point in time. You have to keep people virally suppressed for a long period of time Mm -hmm. to end HIV. And fewer than 50% of all people living with HIV in the U.S., are sustainably virally suppressed. We're already seeing really discouraging numbers as well in terms of PrEP and making sure that people are able to continue to take PrEP, where within the first three to six months, it doesn't matter if you're in the United States or if you are looking at some of the global data in Europe or Africa, within the first three to six months, that's when you see the highest rate of people who discontinue using PrEP. So we have to figure out ways that we can keep people in care and on this amazing intervention. Let's turn for a few minutes to the global pandemic. And obviously, there are you know, a huge number of issues we could talk about. But you've made a couple of allusions to, to global. And there's one dimension of it that I'd like to ask you to reflect on. And that is, we now know that there are, according to UNA, it's about 37.7 million people living with HIV around the world, of whom an estimated 27.5 million are getting antiretroviral treatment, which is a huge improvement over what things were like 20 years ago. And in fact, new infections globally have declined by 31% between 2010 and 2020. AIDS-related deaths were down by 47% during the same period. That's good news. But there are still more than 1.5 million new infections every year around the world and still something like 680,000 deaths. And prevention rates aren't increasing fast enough to stop the pandemic, and infections are actually rising in some countries and and regions. You know, every day there are more than 4,000 new infections around the world. We know that 60% of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Roughly half of those new infections are in women. Three in 10 are in young people from the ages of 15 to 24. And roughly two-thirds of those are in young girls. And if we look at key populations, men who have sex with men, commercial sex workers, drug users, uh, transgender people, and their sexual partners, they account for something like two-thirds of all new infections worldwide. That's sort of consistent with some of what you were saying about what the U.S. epidemic looks like. But, you know, there's still so much work we need to do to stop the spread of HIV infection and end it as a public health problem. And Wafel Sadr uh, at ICAP and her colleagues had an interesting article in PLOS Medicine a couple of years ago entitled, Reaching Global HIV AIDS Goals, What Got Us Here Won't Get Us There. And what they focused on was the need for differentiated HIV prevention and and treatment delivery services. 
And, you know, we've seen examples of this differentiated treatment and delivery in a number of places. It's had a dramatic impact. I mean, if you look at PEPFAR, they've started to use multi-month dispensing, which has helped improve adherence rates uh, tremendously and was a boon during COVID-19 when people couldn't get to clinics, but they might have six months of their medicines supply on hand. Again, another PEPFAR example, the DREAMS program, which focused on adolescent girls and young women, but it went beyond biomedical interventions and really looked at holistically at all of the risk factors that were in their lives and sort of tried to address them as well. You know, we're seeing that, in a sense, those kinds of interventions look at policies as an intervention. So if you change the policy on can you get multi-month supplies, then that has an impact on treatment outcomes. If you say that uh, there are going to be policies that make uh, gender-based violence is something that, uh, you know, men are not going to be able to indulge in that with impunity, but they're going to be punished and those laws will be enforced, that policy intervention will have an impact on HIV, the health of people living with HIV or at risk of HIV. So the question for you is, I just wonder, from all of the work that's been done in these kinds of differentiated service delivery programs around the world, and I've used a couple of examples from PEPFAR, do you think there are lessons we can learn here in the U.S. from the global response that will be relevant to ending the HIV epidemic in the U.S.? You know, it's a complicated question because there's a yes and a no. And the no is the sense that there's more things that are alike between the U.S. pandemic and the global pandemic than we would like to admit. Both have plateaued in terms of their progress in combating HIV. For both, we can't keep people on PrEP or HIV treatment, ART, for an extended period of time. People are not staying on any of these programs. Stigma remains a barrier to accessing treatment or even accessing HIV prevention. We also know that local policies complicate the response to HIV. So for key populations, injection drug users, reproductive health for women, etc., we're seeing that domestically and globally. We're also seeing flat funding and also the fact that the public has moved on from HIV. HIV, both domestically and globally. But what is working globally? I mean, you mentioned a couple of them, you know, one of them being the DREAMS initiative and really taking a look at structural interventions and how do we move some of that forward and change the environment around people to make them less likely to get HIV is certainly something that we need to be doing more of here in the United States. One of the things that you didn't mention, but we do see globally is the stability of access to services globally, which is different. So for instance, in many of the PEPFAR countries, they've been able to do something really novel, which is to remove user fees for access to care. And you basically have free point of service care in many of the PEPFAR countries. The U.S. insurance system does not allow us to do that. We have exactly, as you mentioned, this patchwork where people cycle in and out of the Medicaid program. Drug formularies are notoriously horrible for accessing treatment as well as prevention. And if we're able to get rid of some of those user fees and to standardize things in some fashion here in the U.S., that would also be helpful. The other thing that's different, too, with the PrepFAR program is that they have real targets and a good, coordinated, intentional approach programmatically. We don't have that in the U.S. What we see in PEPFAR, you know, they've run a particularly focused program where they're working in countries that are highly oriented around data and integrating data into the response. The U.S. response were far more passive. There's not a clear politically driven strategy to hit 95, 95, 95, as we see in PEPFAR countries. And it would require mobilizing political support, not only at the federal level, but at the state and the local government. So there's a lot more layers that make it difficult for us to coordinate in the U.S. as what we're seeing in the PEPFAR program. Those are interesting similarities and contrasts that you just drew. For listeners who aren't immediately clear on what 95, 95, 95 means, those are the global targets adopted by UNAIDS that 95% of HIV positive people should know their status, 95% of those should be enrolled in care, 
and 95% of those should attain viral suppression. And that's been a policy framework that's been used globally for the HIV response. Let me just turn finally to two last questions. One of them is very timely. The world's been riveted by the human costs of the war in Ukraine for the past two weeks. And we know that there are more than 2 million Ukrainians who have left the country already. But one aspect of this migration that's been hidden, or at least hasn't been highlighted, is the impact it's going to have on people living with HIV. Because we know that Ukraine has a roughly 1% HIV prevalence, which means that there are probably from 16 to 20,000 people living with HIV who've been displaced in the past two weeks. Just talk a little bit about how that will affect their lives and whether healthcare systems in Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, the countries where they're likely to end up, are prepared to provide the services they need. And also, you know, what should happen if Russia does prevail, heaven forbid, and all of a sudden Russian policies take place in Ukraine? That's a great question. I think one of the things that we already know about Ukraine is that the pandemic there is primarily among people who inject drugs and men who have sex with men. And when we take a look at those individuals who are displaced, we know that they're going to be displaced into some countries that have different policies when it comes to each one of those groups. And as we mentioned before in our discussion, you know, policies really have an impact on whether or not people have access to care or whether or not they want to access care. So for instance, in Hungary, Hungary is not a really great country for LGBT populations. They criminalize, you know, LGBT populations mm. in some way. So people who are fleeing to Hungary who are men who have sex with men might find it harder to access some of their HIV services. In terms of people who inject drugs, that's also going to be difficult as well because we see a patchwork quilt in terms of the countries that are surrounding Ukraine that really have good harm reduction services the way that Ukraine had harm reduction services. It's no coincidence that when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, that he not only called the leaders their Nazis, but he also said that they were riddled with drug users. And why that's important is because Russia has had a horrible response to the HIV epidemic among people who inject drugs, as well as a horrible response to the HIV epidemic among men who have sex with men. And if Ukraine does fall to Russia, those individuals who are a part of either one of those groups are going to find it very difficult to access care because of all the stigma that's levied against those populations and because of the fact that Russia is definitely not a fan of harm reduction services for people who inject drugs and certainly doesn't have differentiated services or services that are specific for men who have sex with men. So that's something for all of us to consider and for all of us to be concerned about as we see this diaspora of Ukrainians who are fleeing this conflict. Yet another among the many reasons why Russia should desist, and we all hope to see that conflict end as soon as possible. Well, my last question for you, Greg, is we've talked about a lot of very challenging problems about some, you know, the uh, this last uh, topic about what's going on in Ukraine leads one to despair at, at the state of the world. But let me just ask you finally, what gives you cause for optimism and hope in the continuing fight to end the HIV epidemic? There's a couple of things that give me optimism. One is, you know, I'm a scientist and I have an unwavering belief in science. Just think about where we were in 2020 with the number of people who were dying from COVID-19. My family's from New York City and the wave of deaths there were just incredible. And that within a year that we have effective vaccines that are available, that we could actually turn the tide on that is amazing. We also have scientific advances, as you'd mentioned, long-acting agents and others that could actually move us forward to ending the HIV epidemic quicker in dealing with some of these 
issues of people not remaining in care in a way that I think could bridge some of these problems. I think the other reason that I'm optimistic as well is that, you know, in many ways, I'm living proof that science prevails, that the impossible, the insurmountable can actually happen. You know, as a person living with HIV, if I were diagnosed in the early 80s, maybe even in the late 80s and early 90s, there's no guarantee that I'd be here speaking with you today. There's no guarantee that my husband would have been here as well. And the fact that we have all of these treatments that are available, that there's so many people who worked in concert with the scientific community, HIV advocates and others, to really work quickly to get us to the place where we are, where HIV has become just a normal and, and in many ways sort of boring aspect of people's health profiles. It's just like having diabetes. It's just something that you deal with and you take a pill for every day. That gives me hope that we're able to, in my lifetime, go from a disease that had killed so many individuals, so many of my contemporaries that I was growing up with in New York City, to a disease that has become somewhat humdrum in some ways because there's so many people, both domestically and globally, who are diagnosed with HIV, but they're going to live long, happy, healthy, productive lives as if they were not diagnosed with HIV. And that definitely gives me a lot of hope. So I do think that we're going to be able to end HIV in the near future. Well, that's a good note on which to end the interview. It, it is an optimistic note, and there's more work to be done, but we should be able to extend that kind of equitable access to care to many more people over the coming years. This has been a really interesting, very thought-provoking conversation, Greg, and I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast, and we'll look forward to continuing this at other times. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.